Population health studies can be notoriously difficult to enroll, simply because of their typical massive size and scope. But the Healthy Nevada Project, which has turned into the largest community-based population health study in the world, managed to enroll 10,000 study volunteers in just 48 hours and collect DNA samples in only 60 working days. 18 months after the project's launch, it opened 40,000 more testing slots. And six months after that, the project actually returned clinical results to the study volunteers and their doctors, meaning improved guidance and care was available to them. Today, we're privileged to speak with the chief architect of the Healthy Nevada Project, Joe Jimsky, who's also probably the first trained oceanographer to work at the Desert Research Institute. Stick around, you're not gonna wanna miss this. Joe, thanks so much for being with us on Data Point today. My pleasure, Greg. I have been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I know that you have done some work with James Liu from Helix in the past, and his interview from, gosh, just about a year ago is one of my favorites. So really eager to dive into your work with you. And as you know, on this show, I love to not only feature your work, but I love to give our listeners a little bit of perspective on who you are and where you came from. Uh, and so. You know, while I know that pretty much every community hospital has a resident oceanographer on staff, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how your background, you know, what are some of the milestones in your career that actually led you to be working with uh, the Desert Research Institute and with uh, Renown Health? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not uh, recommending individuals who want to get into human health and, and genetics necessarily study oceanography, but uh, I guess I've been lucky enough to study and immerse myself in knowledge uh, across a, a breadth of, of disciplines, and, and I think that serves you well when, when tackling complex challenges. So I did my undergraduate education at Bowdoin College in the liberal arts and, and really mm -hmm. tried to study as much as possible. I majored in philosophy, uh, but then threw in a biology major right at the end and was lucky enough to receive a Fulbright scholarship and studied in Norway with a, a, a great ecologist who really emphasized quantitative biology and and then moved from there to my graduate work at uh, Rutgers University and, and worked with, with two incredible scientists, one who was actually a geologist and a biophysicist, and then the other who was a, a true oceanographer and and really spent time exploring the world, so to speak, on on ships. And I've been to Antarctica many times, I've been to the North Pole, I've dove in Alvin. Um, I, I've been really, really lucky. But the, the, the major theme has always been quantitative biology. And, and so when I moved uh, to the Rockefeller University for my postdoc, I studied with a physical chemist, uh, again, to, to really try to understand how to imbue uh, biology with, with more quantitative um, oversight, so to speak, and uh, started thinking about um, genetics back then because we were trying to understand some aspects of, of photosynthesis and 
genetics and, and genomics in particular were becoming very popular. And I, I just saw the writing on the wall and, and really became a, a self-taught bioinformaticist, uh, taught myself, you know, parallelized computing, uh, how to code, um, how to think about questions quantitatively and, and answer using large data sets. And that that's kind of the the 50-second academic backdrop. Um, yeah, and actually, a, if you don't mind, I would love to dive into that a little bit because I'm very curious about the progression from a philosophy major to your background ultimately in quantitative biology, informatics. But then I'm also curious about how that squares with the work you've done in the field. It strikes me that, you know, the informaticist is not necessarily the one spending time in the field, but maybe I'm misreading that. How does that all come together for you? Yeah, well, I never got super injured in the field, so I at least had enough skills to not make major mistakes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm really taken by uh, David Epstein's book, Range. Uh, it kind of has validated my meandering approach, um, and a lot of, of that book really resonated with, with me and, and maybe the the difficulty in in finding what what he and others call match quality and and so i i think some scientists kind of get it right off the bat they they want to focus you know really really specifically in an area and 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 that's just not who i am and and so i did a lot of exploring but the the theme of all of those explorations was to produce you know high quality science in in very good journals and and make sure that it was peer reviewed by you know experts in the field and i think being in the field really helps understand uh the the controlled chaos of large organizations this might be a bit of a stretch but but hospital systems are 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 insane they're they're just you know they're they're incredibly complicated organizations and and i think a lot of my experiences in places where you know you had to be ultra ultra prepared Antarctica would be would be one of them on a ship mm-hmm. where you if you didn't bring what you needed you were in trouble uh, has helped create a, a very complex population health study. Interesting. And is it common for people in your field to have that kind of broad? I'm going to call it real life experience, which may be an unfair term to use, but is that normal? I mean, for sure. I'm unusual, but you know, one of my advisors in in graduate school, Paul Falkowski, who is uh, is just an unbelievable thinker and has really influenced me, um, taught us how to to tackle very complicated problems and and how to think critically. And I I think that's what's needed um, in in preparation for you know, becoming a PI. Uh, mm. My grandfather also was a, was a huge influence uh, on me. He was a, a polyglot and, and really loved learning. And, and I saw that uh, and, and it, you know, profoundly influenced me uh, growing up. And, and so as long as I'm doing that, 
Uh, I'm not sure it really matters what field I'm in. Um, but that said, uh, I experienced some, you know, unfortunate uh, health-related traumas in my family, particularly in graduate school. My father developed cancer mm. uh, and passed away when when he was too young, and I was, and my brothers were definitely too young. And I, I think you don't need to look much farther than that. And my exploratory nature of of how I do my science to to realize that eventually I was going to find my way to uh, challenges in biomedicine and and you know life just works funny and and I was very very lucky to be in the right place in the right time and and get you know a really large foundational grant at the Desert Research Institute to start exploring these questions and that actually feels like a good time to take a quick break we are going to be right back with Joe Jimsky on data point and we are back on Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and with us today is Joe Jimsky from Renown Health and from the Desert Research Institute. And Joe, when we went into the break, we were just talking about your transition uh, from your oceanographic work uh, and some of your background in the field, but how that eventually led you into the Desert Research Institute. And I'm wondering if you could say a few words about what DRI is and how your work there has evolved in the you know decade plus that you've been there. Absolutely. So the Desert Research Institute uh, is a soft money research institute that was formed by the Nevada legislature about 60 years ago. And the goal, of course, is to serve the state and, and humanity with insights, particularly in the environmental sciences, uh, but that has always touched on uh, profound impacts to health, particularly in lots of work on water quality, atmospheric air quality, uh, dust work. Uh, that that obviously, you know, dust and pollution is is the leading cause of of early death throughout the world. You know, it's not as big an issue in the United States, but. Um, pollution is is a huge, huge deal. And so DRI has always been at the forefront of research in the environmental sciences. And when I moved out to Nevada uh, almost 15 years ago, I, I honestly thought it was it was it was in a transition period of my life when I was exploring and and you know I just lost my father. We just had 9/11. I mean things were a mess and. Uh, came out here honestly to to practice my my skiing because we have the Sierra Nevadas uh, just a, a few miles <laughs> That's away. As good a reason as any. It it absolutely is, and and was working um, on a project and and using some of my skills in um, pathway analysis and and informatics, and just started naturally moving towards the informatics and and genetics and. Uh, after the economic calamity uh, that hit the United States, uh, we we were very lucky in Nevada to have a, an incredibly progressive um, and empathic uh, governor, Governor Brian Sandoval, and and mm. he re recognized the need uh, that the state, you know, had to turn away somewhat from 
the lifestyle disease industries of of gaming and and mining and and start to diversify the economy we had one of the the poorest adult um educationally attained population in the united states so so the 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 fewest adults that had you know college degrees and and that was because frankly you could do pretty well in nevada uh, working for the gaming industry or working in mining and and there wasn't mm-hmm. a huge emphasis on higher ed uh, and so Governor Sandoval really worked to transform that. And one of the things he did, besides empower his uh, governor's office of economic development to, to work on bringing companies like uh, the Tesla and Panasonic Gigafactory here, was he created this knowledge fund. And the knowledge fund was a, a corpus of money that was dedicated to uh, the Desert Research Institute. UNR and UNLV, those are our two um, universities in, in Reno and Las Vegas, and, and basically challenged the administration of, of those three institutions to build uh, translational research programs up, up to them, but, but with an emphasis on diversifying the type of research that was going on um, at the institutions with an emphasis on on translational mechanisms and economic development mechanisms and uh, i was lucky enough uh to to be the pi of of dri's grant and frankly took the charge really seriously that uh individuals who who receive you know large uh you know funding initiatives really need to make something of it um or you know your colleagues tend to look askance upon you and and say you know look at look at jimsky he got all this money and and all he did was was build his lab bigger uh-huh. and 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 that just wasn't something that we were going to do and and so we we did a deep dive on areas where we thought we could meet these goals of of uh, the governor's office of economic development, and one of the areas was in, for for lack of a, a better set of words, agricultural technology, uh, and mm-hmm. it really leveraged a lot of DRI's strengths in data collection, monitoring, um, analysis, understanding the environment, understanding factors that influenced outcomes uh, in the environment, and 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 recognized Nevada's stature and you know the the ag belt both in the state but but of course near to california and and so i felt like if we made investments in these areas we would meet a lot of the initiatives of um the governor's office of economic mm-hmm. development and then the the second has always been something that i thought we should focus more on given our examination of of environmental factors that caused health but here now was an opportunity to make direct investments in doing more work that directly impact human beings in the state and i i felt that was vital given decreases in funding uh that that are happening at the federal level for for basic research um but we're always going to have um, significant funding for biomedicine. And, and that's, you know, everything because of new diseases. I mean, now we have, you know, coronavirus, we've got 
an aging population, et cetera. Uh, mm. we, we have better insights into links between genotype and phenotype, which is now what we're spending a lot of time focusing on. And so we, we started making the pitch through a, a coincidental introduction with the president and CEO of, of Renown Health, which is our mm-hmm. local uh, community hospital system. You know, I basically pitched them this idea of, of using a lot of the infrastructure that I had built at DRI and in, in my group for analyzing health data. And, and that really was, was the beginning of the Healthy Nevada project. Um, it, it actually had no genetic component to it. it. It really was about analyzing health data and applying our unique, you know, hypothesis-driven lens mm-hmm. to data that, that the health system was was underutilizing for purposes of, of research and also for purposes of, of making better predictions about what their population would need. Excellent. And you've given us a lot of good threads to pull here. We're going to take another quick break, but we are going to be right back with Joe Jimsky. Stick around. And we are back with Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and Joe Jimsky of the Desert Research Institute and Renown Health uh, is our guest. We were just starting to talk about a signature project that has really gotten a lot of global attention, uh, which is the Healthy Nevada Project. Uh, Joe, you mentioned that this is something that you kind of uh, serendipitously had an opportunity to present to uh, the, at the time, pretty new leadership of Renown Health. Um, and ultimately, it, it wound up becoming the Healthy Nevada Project. Can you tell us a little bit about Healthy Nevada, you know, what it is, how the public has been involved and how they responded, some of the things you've learned? Absolutely. So the Healthy Nevada Project, you know, as I mentioned earlier, was was started as an examination of this deep uh, phenotype data set or medical record data set that Renown um, was sitting on using obviously for clinical purposes, but but not leveraging for research purposes. And, and we made the pitch that we could, you know, safely, securely, compliantly uh, start doing research on these data up at DRI. We've got lots of experience with DOD projects, DOE projects that are more secure than HIPAA. Uh, so we convinced Renown to to give us access to this data and then got the appropriate um, institutional review board approval to start doing what I call health determinants research. So aggregating mm-hmm. aspects of outcomes with, uh, you know, everything from, from census data, our environmental data, behavior data through survey, et cetera. And when you start doing that, you realize uh, that if you had genetic data on top of that, uh, you'd, you'd really have quite a an impressive set of data to start linking uh, genotype uh, to phenotype and and yeah. start understanding the evolution of of disease and and why some people get sick and some don't uh, et cetera and so we further uh, convinced uh, renowned health to to make an investment in a genetics component of uh, than what became the Healthy Nevada Project. Excellent. And 
just for the for the listeners who may not be familiar with Renown Health, you know, this is the kind of study that we might expect to see coming out of Johns Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or something like that. Renown Health is is, is a different kind of institution, right? Can you tell us just a, a quick blurb about who Renown Health is and why it's so unusual to be engaged in this kind of work? Yeah, so Northern Nevada is a is a fascinating place to study health. I I talk about this all the time. We have a single community tertiary care hospital system called Renown Health, uh, basically sitting between Sacramento, California, and Salt Lake City, Utah. It's a massive area in the north. Uh, Las Vegas is a very different place. That's the south. Uh, and and renowned health is is a community not for profit profit healthcare system and you're you're exactly right um, it's not an academic medical center it does have affiliations with uh, the University of Nevada School of Medicine and, and with DRI but this was really an opportunity to improve uh, its stature in in the research and in biomedicine and and our our CEO, uh, Dr. Tony Slonim, you know, really promoted that aspect of it and uh, wanted uh, to build something that that really gave back um, to the community in different ways. And so, you know, one way is very specifically when you consent to be in a in a genetic study. We um, and our partners at Helix. Um, decided that we were going to return results on on CDC tier one conditions mm-hmm. and um, that, that that was something that that became really important um, as the the study expanded and renowned started focusing more and more on clinical genetics and so there's this direct interaction with individuals and we also interact with them in in non-sciencey ways we we give them access to things like ancestry and traits but mm-hmm. um for sure one of the hallmarks of of the study has been returning results on on these uh what we call and and what others call the CDC tier 1 conditions so i'm guessing that when you're talking about a population this is not a single urban center we're talking about a population that is spread out across a massive geographic area as you described typically not an urban population often a, a very rural population I got to believe that getting participation in a program like this must have been a real ordeal. Can you tell us a little bit about how the public responded uh, when you know informed that the Healthy Nevada project was going to begin? Sure. So the the project actually began um, as a, a collaboration uh, with the great personal genetics company Twenty Three and Me, and. Mm-hmm. Um, we the, the initial goal was could we build the infrastructure at the hospital system to study population level health and and that was really all we were asking in the beginning no sure. curing cancer no returning results could we build infrastructure to consent and engage 5000 people and that that was the original goal um you know i mentioned earlier uh, our engaged then governor uh, Brian Sandoval he showed up at at the launch of this event you know called uh, healthy nevada project and within one day 
uh, 5,000 people had gone onto the website and, and signed up for this study. The renowned health foundation. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's insane. Um, the renowned health foundation committed more funding uh, for another 5,000 individuals. And within another 24 hours, 5,000 more people had signed up. And then over the next uh, 90 days, we collected saliva, consented them and brought them through our process. Um, and, and so, we obviously proved, yes, we could build the infrastructure to start understanding population level mm. health issues. And that is and remarkable. That, I mean, it, it, studying, you know, knowing how clinical trials have such a massive, you know, enrollment issue, the fact that you can double your anticipated number of enrollees and get them, you know, to have submitted, in this case, the saliva that, that they needed to within 90 days, that is stunning. Yeah, the success was uh, remarkable. It, it obviously creates further challenges, right? You have to meet the expectations of people mm-hmm. that they're very high. Um, research and, and science moves much slower than that. And so there's an inherent gap between the collecting of data and 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 shouting from the rooftops that you've found something really important to the population. And and that's why in the second phase of the study, the decision was made that we would return clinically actionable results back uh, to individuals. And and so we're now in that second phase. We have almost 50,000 individuals in the study, and we've been returning CDC tier one results to them and, and finding that uh, a lot of the cases uh, would have been missed using normal clinical practice. And so the the study is evolving to engage at the N of one, as we call it in, in, in science or statistics level, mm-hmm. um, while aggregating population level data, both from, from Reno Sparks, which is, is the urban center of, of renowned health catchment mm-hmm. area, but then this massive uh, rural area that extends, you know, all the way out to, um, you know, the, the salt flats and the, and the Great Salt Lake um, east of us. And so th- those challenges, the challenges of, of maintaining, you know, the diversity of your population in the health study are, are mm-hmm. huge and require infrastructure, communication, marketing. And and really the study has taken on, you know, its its own personality because of, of trying to meet all of these goals um, in assessing or, or building a report card for the hospital of the population health of the community. So let's talk about the N of one for a second. You referenced the fact that there were, you know, a number of markers that surfaced uh, that otherwise would not have that point to tier one conditions. Can you give us a specific example of what that might look like? Sure. So the the CDC tier one conditions are uh, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome from mutations on BRCA1 and Mm -hmm. 2 genes, um, Lynch syndrome, 
which is uh, an inherited risk for colorectal and endometrial cancer mm-hmm. um, due to mutations on a, on a set of, of DNA repair genes and familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a inherited lipid disorder mm-hmm. uh, that basically causes your body to accumulate LDL uh, cholesterol, which increases your risk for, for early heart disease. And uh, we, of course, have now heard stories from individuals in the study who who came into the study to learn about ancestry or traits or, or nominally health and then um, had seemingly no family history of, of these conditions, and they're finding that they are at significantly increased risk. And they're, the, the stories that are being told, and, and we are not the only ones telling these stories, is that you know we're missing a lot of, of risk in the community when we're, we're using um, you know, more antiquated tools like family history assessments mm-hmm. rather than letting genetics tell the story. Now, that comes with, with caveats of, of compliance and, you know, are we going to live in a future where uh, the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act is, is continually enforced or are we going to tear down, you know, these rules? Are we going to modify whether or not individuals can be discriminated discriminated against based on genetics. These are all things that give people reason to pause. Um, However, our study is a a research study, and so we're able to balkanize a lot of the information and not contaminate Mm -hmm. um, the medical record. And and so we've taken a, a much more democratized approach to returning results. We return results through licensed genetic counselors directly to individuals that have these conditions, and we empower them to make the necessary decisions that clinicians know once you follow them, um, you will improve outcomes because risks are so high. And and that's kind of the central philosophy of the study is, is to empower the individual while aggregating data on the population level to try to make you know impacts on things we don't yet know n- enough about. So if I get, for example, a, you know, if I'm talking to a genetic counselor and see that I have, uh, you know, a marker for familiar, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, I then have an opportunity to learn about what that means and learn about mitigation strategies, whether those are lifestyle-based, whether those are treatment-based, that will allow me to essentially change my future before it happens. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? That that is correct, and and part of that engagement that we would have with you is is to remind you that, you know, this condition, if detected early and treated early, um, will will actually b- bring your risk profile almost near to background, and so it's important to engage for you to engage with your primary care provider um, in in these next steps. Now we could just as easily have just said. Greg, thank you for joining the Healthy Nevada Project. We have found something that we think is important, and we have directly told your doctor, and that that's not what we decided to do. And and both have 
positives and negatives, and and we we could have an entire podcast on how do you engage individuals. That's what I call the you know the trillion dollar problem in healthcare is is lifestyle disease and how to make modifications. But we find you know in this battle born state of Nevada, that's our motto that. The individuals want to be empowered with the information. We mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time educating them and their providers on what we are returning and and how to follow best practices. And uh, I I imagine over time uh, we will see outcomes, particularly in these inherited risks, um, improve. And that's that's a huge win for. Um, the community of Northern Nevada, and of course, Renown Health, who who treats a large majority of these uh, acute cases. So I think more than just teeing up one additional podcast subject, I've I've counted about nine so far that we could make entire episodes about. But as we're closing today, because in the in the interest of time, I want to bring this to a conclusion. Healthy Nevada Project has been going on for what four ish years now. Is that right? That's correct. So. Tell me about some of the other kind of work that you are engaged in. Uh, in our pre-interview, we were talking about some of the applied research, for example, uh, that has become really interesting and a priority. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of that and how and when people should consider engaging you and DRI and potentially even Renown Health in uh, you know, answering some of those kind of questions? Yes. Yeah, so in July of of 2019, uh, we announced a collaboration with Gilead Sciences on the studying of uh, Nash, which is non-alcoholic um, liver disease, um, and a, a huge risk factor would be type two diabetes, um, mm-hmm. metabolic syndrome, things that are profound first world problems now. And that collaboration began, like all collaborations, as as a a conversation around, you know, the infrastructure that we built for Healthy Nevada, our population, what we knew about them, and uh, could we uh, amass a large enough population to to study um, this disease, which has no approved um, therapeutics right now and mm-hmm. is um, on the rise in the United States. I think there's thought that you know many millions of individuals have um, a combination of either NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or or NASH itself, um, and that's one example and. There are others ongoing. We have uh, a beautiful new study that just was funded by the National Institutes of Health on, on looking at gene environment interactions. And this is really in, in DRI's sweet spot mm-hmm. of trying to understand, you know, this added risk that might occur when somebody has a specific combination of, of gene, uh, of genetic mutations and um, has uh, exposures. And, and that's a, a complicated problem, but you, you can imagine at least theoretically that um, there are you know, pools of individuals who have relatively similar genetics, um, but they've been exposed to different things and uh, they end up um, going on to have different 
uh, health outcomes. And, and that's very different than the CDC tier one condition we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, where an individual has you know, a, a specific marker for an increased risk for a disease, and um, that can be identified, and then you can take action on it. Well, here we're trying to figure out why some individuals um, can be exposed to certain situations and develop disease, and, and others are not. And that gene-environment interaction interplay is is fascinating. I think it's a it's a very important future topic um, that more and more researchers are going to be studying. And I always like to to emphasize that the environment is is both the environment you create and the environment around you. And so right. obviously the, the Sierra Nevada is a very different environment than, than let's say San Francisco, but there's also the built environment. Um, there's the environment of your childhood, you know, whether mm-hmm. or not you were exposed to secondhand smoke, et cetera. And, and so it's a, it's a really complicated problem and we need, you know, lots of researchers aggregating their data um, to understand those interactive effects. And, and so those are two examples of, of things that we're, we're working on in conjunction with, you know, also directly engaging with um, the incredible uh, participants in the Healthy Nevada Project. Man, that is fascinating. Joe, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful for you sharing your knowledge and experience. I am going to have links uh, to be able to reach out to you and to DRI and Renown Health in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to check the show page, you'll be able to figure out how to connect with Joe and the organizations we've discussed today. Uh, I'll also include some uh, some articles and some references relative to Healthy Nevada and some of the other projects we've gone through. Uh, but Joe, I want to—I just want to say thanks, and uh, I hope that we'll have an opportunity to follow up on some of those other nine podcast uh, topics that, that we teed up today. It would be my pleasure, Greg. Excellent. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.